His faithful follower I will be, for by his hand he leadeth me. I trust that each one of us here is willing to make that commitment. His faithful follower I will be, wherever his hand leads you. So we looked earlier at the significance of meeting God on the mountain, why it is important. Now we would like to go to the mountain. We'd like to meet God on the mountain. We'd like to learn of his ways and learn more of him. Meet me on the mountain. Meeting God on the mountain. I'd like to look here at this session and in the uh, session this afternoon, I'd like to look at six different examples of people who met God on the mountain. And it's interesting as you read scriptures, it seems like mountains have a, a pretty um, significant role to play in a lot of the accounts of scripture. Even Jesus himself, a lot of what he did took place on a mountain. Uh, numerous different, numerous um, times throughout his life, a time of temptation, he was taken up to an exceeding high mountain. Um, spent lots of times with his disciples on the mountain. He gave some of his sermons, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and not only that, but uh, Matthew 24, 25 uh, was spoken, I think, from Mount Olivet. Uh, the Transfiguration, one of the highlights of his life, took place on the mountain. And Jesus is not the only one. Uh, there's lots of interesting events in the scripture that took place on mountains. Now, I'm going to uh, give you a little bit of a test, a little bit of a quiz here this morning. I'd like to see how many Bible mountains you can name. Now, most of these come from Old Testament stories. I'll give you that clue, but just give me some names of mountains that you recall being mentioned in the Bible. What, what comes to your mind? Mount Horeb? Mount Carmel? Sinai? What was that? Mount of Olives? Okay. Can you think of any more? Calvary? Mount Ararat? Okay. Well, each of these mountains that we're going to look at, I'd like to use as an illustration of a different aspect of God's character or his personality or some way in which he wants to present himself to us. And uh, each of these begin with the uh, same letter. We'll get to that shortly. So we're looking... I have the wrong section of the verse there highlighted. No, looking at my verse wrong. He will teach us of his ways. Looking at the second part of our theme verse. This morning it was, Come ye, go up to the mountain of the Lord. Now we want to allow him to teach us of his ways as we go up to the mountain. First of all, I'd like to look out at Mount Sinai. That account is found in Exodus 19 as an illustration of God's presence. God revealing his presence to his people in a very tangible way. Now, I'm wondering how many of you ever asked yourselves, maybe not consciously, maybe somewhat subconsciously, but maybe this question is kind of nagging at our minds sometimes, where is God? Yeah, he's shown himself to other people, 
he's shown himself to all these other situations. But for me, right now, where I am, where is God? And maybe sometimes you felt that his presence was just pretty elusive, that you, you couldn't quite find him, or he, he wasn't showing himself to you like you wished he would. You have questions, you're seeking for answers, you're seeking for his will, you're seeking for solutions to your problems. Where is God when I need him? Why isn't he here? Why doesn't he respond? Why doesn't he answer me? We know that God is omnipresent, but somehow it just seems like we can't connect. Sometimes your life might just be glowing with his presence. Other times it seems dark. Sometimes it seems that in the moments you need him the most, he's most difficult to find. Where is God? Where is his presence? Well, that is a question that the children of Israel dealt with. And I'm not going to give you an entire history of the children of Israel, but you recall how Joseph went down to Egypt and um, during the time of the famine in Egypt, he was given a very high position and Joseph and the Egyptian pharaoh were able to connect. Uh, Joseph was appreciated. He was given a high res- uh, position of responsibility and his whole family came down to Egypt. Everything was going well. At that time, it, there probably weren't too many people asking, where is God among the, the um, family of Jacob? But time went on. Hundreds of years passed. There was a new pharaoh who knew nothing about this family. He just saw them as an opportunity, as slaves. And the slavery was getting pretty severe. And the people were crying out to God. And I can imagine their cry was, God, where are you? Don't you see what we're facing? Don't you see this trouble? Don't you see this toil that we're in? And there's verses that indicate that their cry was heard by God. They were crying, and God heard their cry. But he did not just show himself in a miraculous way the first instant they cried. They continued to cry. And God did show himself in some wonderful ways. So during this time, God was working in the life of Moses, preparing him, and we'll talk more about Moses a bit later on, preparing him for what he had for him. But then God began to show himself in some very real ways, and he began to show himself to the people of Israel. And in uh, Exodus chapter 4, Moses came back to the children of Israel, and Moses and Aaron, they spake the words to the children of Israel, did signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. There we have that word again. Before God continued to work, the people were worshipping. Do you notice that? So they were seeing that, yes, God is doing something. And then some more very wonderful things happened. Um, Moses went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't believe in God. He says, who's God? (laughs) God. You talk about God. Who's God? I've never seen God. Who is he? Well, God revealed himself to Pharaoh in, again, some very outstanding ways through the plagues, through the death of his son. And then the events of crossing the Red Sea. Pharaoh thought, okay, this is the end. These people are finally trapped. I'm going to go get them. And then he saw the sea opened up, something that he had never seen before. None of them had ever seen something so marvelous. God was showing himself. 
And then the children of Israel saw that how they were delivered by the Egyptian army as those waters came crashing down upon the army. It was wonderful. And then they continued to live in the presence of God. And God did some more wonderful things. They needed water. They only had bitter waters. God turned those waters into sweet waters. Wonderful. He gave his people quails to eat. He gave them manna to eat. He brought water out of the rock. Then there was uh, the armies of Amalek came and fight them. He delivered them in a wonderful way. God was there. God was working. And as God was working, the people were excited. But now we move into kind of a, a new phase in this event. And the children of Israel were being led farther and farther away from that which was familiar, from that which they had seen. They were leaving Rephidim behind, the place where God had miraculously given them water. They were leaving Egypt behind, the Red Sea, all those events. They were leaving them behind, and not only were they fading out of sight, it seems like they were almost fading out of the children's memory. And they were beginning to ask questions. God, are you still here in this God-forsaken wilderness that we're entering? Are you here? And they asked the question, is the Lord among us or not? That was a question that was burning in their heart. And I think God was displeased with that question. But sometimes it's a very real question. God, are you among us? Are you here or aren't you? And if you ask that question, not in sarcasm, not in anger, but if you ask that question in sincerity, God, are you here? Yes. I, I know you're here, but it seems I can't see you. God, would you reveal yourself to me? You know, Moses had that prayer when he met God. God asked him, what, what's your request? And Moses' request was, God, just show me your glory. I, I, I know I have this time of communion with you, but I, I want something a little more obvious. And I don't think that's a, a bad prayer for any one of us. God, show me your glory. I, I just want to experience your presence in a real way. And if you make that prayer, that your prayer, I think God wants to reveal his presence to you. So as you go to meet God on the mountain. Ask Him to reveal His presence. On Mount Sinai, God chose to reveal His presence in an unmistakable, unmistakable and unforgettable way. And He told them, I'm going to come down on the mountain in the sight of all the people. And it says, The glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire. There was a cloud there was thunder, there was lightning, there was a sound of a trumpet, there was smoke, there was fire, the whole mountain shook and quaked, and at this point, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that God was there. Now, I'm not proposing that you're going to feel this building shaking this weekend, but maybe you feel your heart shaking, maybe you feel movement, an evidence that God is there. I just want to encourage you this weekend, not just this weekend, but every day of your life, seek God's presence. Make that your prayer. God, show yourself to me. Show yourself to me 
in a wonderful way. Maybe you need to get out in the mountain like Moses did. Uh, maybe you need to stay there 40 days. Maybe you need to stay there longer. Whatever it takes, pray that God would show you his glory and reveal himself to you in a wonderful way. I think of the, the example of a, a good friend of mine from Romania. His name was Eladion. That won't make a lot of sense to you. But th this man was a, a man that had been used of God in a wonderful way. And this man, I think almost more than any other, I think of whenever I see him in church, the, the joy of the Lord just shone from his face. I mean, it just seemed like he was always beaming with joy and happiness. Well, Eladion was sharing some of his story with me, some of his testimony. And he grew up in a, an extremely poor setting, in a poor village. He said, I grew up in a poor village. My family was one of the poorest families in the village. It was a Christian family, but it was a poor family. And he had this concept in his mind of pastors and of people who had been used of God. You see, he had been aware of some very famous, well-known pastors. And he said, all these pastors that I knew of had so much going for them. They came from a wealthy family. They had good education. They had prominence. And here I was, I had absolutely nothing but he said, I felt this call that God wanted to use me in his service, but I felt I had nothing to give to God. There, there wasn't any hope for me, just this poor little boy from this village. And he was growing up as a teenager, as a young person, as a youth, young man. And he says, I, I kept feeling God's call in my life, but I felt like I had nothing for God. And he shared with me numerous accounts of where he was just seeking God. And he would spend an entire day just alone. He said one day he was working, he worked a night shift in, uh, in town and he'd come back to the village. Uh, one morning he was coming back, he was walking, he took a shortcut through some cornfields. He says, I, I just felt this need to seek God. And he says, I spent all day alone out there in a little opening in the cornfield, just praying for God. He said, those times with God were so meaningful. He said, another time I went in the morning I took my bike out into the forest and he said, I, I was really grappling with this thing that I want to serve God, but I don't have anything to offer him. And so I, was, I spent the day out in the forest praying to God, begging him for some special power. Okay, God, I'm not rich. I don't have a good education. I'm not from a prominent family, but give me something with which I can serve you. And he said, I spent all day out there in the woods praying praying that God would show himself to me in some way. He says, it seemed like I wasn't getting anything. He says, finally it was getting dark. I was out in the middle of the forest. So he said, I, I moved close to the edge of the forest so that I wouldn't be in the middle of the forest in the darkness. And I stayed there even after it was dark. Finally, I went home. He says, I was discouraged because I felt that God did not give me anything. So I went home, went to my room, and I kept on praying and began to reading my Bible. And he says, I just came across this verse, Deuteronomy 10, 12. He says, what doth the Lord require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, to love him, and to serve him. And he said, that was a key point in my life. Because when I read that verse, 
I recognize that God does not need credentials. He does not need college degrees. He does not need money. All he needs is faithfulness and obedience to him. It says, what does the Lord require of thee? Fear the Lord. Walk in his ways. It said, shortly after that, he went to visit his brother, which lived out in a different uh, town in the mountains. And he got to his brother's place only to realize, traveled there by train, got there in the morning, only to realize that his brother was gone for the day. So he said, I saw this as an opportunity. I, I stepped outside the house. I looked around outside of town. I picked the highest mountain I could find. He says, I went out there and I climbed that mountain. It says, it was afternoon till I got to the top and I just spent time with God. He says, it got dark. The moon came out. He said, I just felt like a speck of dust. But he said, the presence, the fellowship I had with God was so beautiful. He said, I just wish everyone could experience what I experienced there on that mountain. I mentioned earlier this morning that one of the very influential parts of my life was time I spent in VS. And in Northern Youth Programs, there were some, some aspects that they emphasized for the young people to help them in their spiritual growth that left a, a significant impact on my life. And there was a little booklet they had available there. The title of it is How to Spend a Day in Prayer. And they encouraged their staff to take days. In fact, they, they provided days. You have this day to just spend a day in prayer. Go out in the forest, go out in the bush, just spend a day with God. And for me as a young person, 18, 19 years old, a whole day praying, how in the world do I pray for a day? You know, I have trouble praying for 15 minutes, 10 minutes, 5 minutes. How am I going to pray for a day? But this little booklet just gave some practical pointers. You know, it's not necessarily being there on your knees, talking all day long, but just a day of fellowship with God. And that kind of opened a door in my life. And there have been numerous times where I just go alone for a day or two days, just time with God, time with a journal. Those have been some tremendously impacting days in my life. I wish I had a copy of this booklet for every one of you. I do not. I have two copies here, and I'm going to leave them here in the front. And if there's anyone here who has a yearning to just spend more time in the presence of God, a whole day with God, I welcome you to pick that up. I'm sorry I don't have a hundred or more copies here, but feel free to make use of those. I, I just want to leave that challenge with you this morning. Seek God's presence. That comes with spending time in Him, God's presence. God showed Himself to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. This morning, we're not in Mount Sinai, but God wants to show His presence to you. But you have to be open to receive that. Pray that He would reveal His presence to you. Now, there's something about the presence of God. Uh, I'd like to refer a little bit to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 talks about the presence of God. And normally when we read this psalm, we think of it as referring to God's presence in a physical way. It talks about places that you can go and God is there. In other words, there's no place you can go to get away from the presence of God. Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from thy spirit? Where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea. Even there shall thy hand lead me. 
the darkness cannot cover me. The darkness and the light. So in a physical sense, there is no place where you can go to get away from God. I'd like to look at this passage in a little different way this morning. I'd like you to think of this, these locations that the psalmist is describing, not as physical locations, but as emotional locations. You see, sometimes our emotions are on the mountain peak. Sometimes our emotions are so far down in the valley that we can't see one speck of light. Sometimes we're in the darkest night, there seems to be no light around. Our emotions do things like that to us. I'm sure you've been there. You know what it's like to be in the mountain. You know what it's like to be in the valley. And when your emotions are on the mountain, God is there. When your emotions are in the valley, God is there as well. And He wants to reveal His presence to you wherever your emotions are. I have a little paraphrase here that I picked up somewhere, I think in a devotional book years ago. It kind of builds off of Psalm 139, but it brings out this aspect of God being exactly where you are emotionally. And I'm going to read that uh, paraphrase to you. God, you are the God of all things. You're the God of the mountain peaks, and you're the God of the ocean depths. You're the God of the sunny mornings, and you're the God of the sleepless nights. But God, my soul has higher peaks than the highest mountain and greater depths than the darkest sea. Father, horizons in the clearest morning and deeper darkness than the blackest night. God, thou who art the God of all these, be my God. I have motives I cannot touch, dreams I cannot reach, thoughts I cannot discern, and feelings I cannot speak. God, search me out. Explore my innermost being. Sort through my motives and lead me in the paths that point to eternal life. Amen. So this morning, again, I just want to challenge you. Seek God's presence. God wants to show himself to you. But sometimes we just don't open ourselves to receive him. Get to the mountain if you need to and seek God's presence. Okay, let's move now to Mount Ararat. I'm going to go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 9. We saw God's presence on Mount Sinai. Anyone want to take a guess what we might see on Mount Ararat? It begins with a P, with the letter P. Any ideas? Let's take a look at God's promises on Mount Ararat. Now, I really think it can be valuable as we read the accounts from the Scripture to try to put ourselves into the setting in which these people were to try to experience what they experienced, try to feel what they are feeling. You've probably heard the expression, the term cabin fever. Do you know what cabin fever is? Cabin fever is a term for a claustrophobic reaction that takes place when you're cooped up. When you're confined to a small place for an extended period of time, and 
you can get pretty irrational when you have cabin fever. It causes you to be frustrated with people, with things. You get lethargic. Sometimes you can get violent. And you just have this compelling urge to get out of here. I remember reading a story. I don't remember a book as a child, as a young boy. Um, I don't remember the title of the book. I don't remember much about it. But there was a pretty, um, a pretty um, graphic description of cabin fever in that book. It took place in the north up in Canada or Alaska or somewhere. I don't remember where. And there were these two young men spending the entire winter in this cabin, basically cooped up. They couldn't go anywhere, and they couldn't do anything. And it got to the point where they were about killing each other because of their cabin fever. And they eventually came to grips with themselves and realized what was happening and, and got over it. But my point is, do you think Noah and his family were experiencing cabin fever as they were in the ark? We see all these nice pictures, you know, of the ark with these nice animals. And it looks nice, you know, peacefully floating on the water with the clear blue sky overhead, you know, as they were waiting for the water to recede. But this was not a pleasure cruise. They were not on a cruise ship. They were in a floating barnyard full of smelly animals. And this was not simply a storm that lasted a day or two or a week or two or even a month or two. They were in that place for over a year. Eight people cooped up in this one place with all these animals. Can you imagine their anticipation to get out of there? They were probably asking themselves, is this ever going to end? Are we ever getting out of this place? Do we have anything to look forward to? I mean, just imagine their desire for fresh air to get out of that floating zoo, experience sunshine, green grass, green trees, blue sky, room to stretch, and probably most of all, get out of each other's hair. Get away from your in-laws or whoever. It was like looking forward to the end of a prison sentence, I believe. I'm imagining here, but put yourself in their situation. And as they were there, they were picturing life as they had known it before, and they were looking forward to experiencing that again. And finally, the ark comes to rest. There's no more of this rocking back and forth. It finally comes to rest. Maybe there's hope. They keep anticipating, keep looking forward. Finally, that day comes. Those rusty hinges creaked as the door slowly opened. Everyone rushes to the door for that first glimpse of their former home. How many of you ever helped with flood cleanup? You know what it looks like. Here again, we see the pictures of the ark resting there in the mountain with all this green grass around. I think they came back to a devastated world. Mud, muck, destroyed trees floating around, laying where they had rested. And as they opened that door, I think reality hit them in the face. This is not the world that we knew. This is not what we were expecting. This is not what we were anticipating. They may have had some shattered dreams to deal with. And then... As they stepped out of the ark, 
stepped onto that land, do you know what happened? It started raining. Remember, it had never rained before the flood. And now they came back to this devastated world, and now it starts raining again. What kind of emotions would that put in your heart? Is this going to happen all over again? Is there going to be a flood? But then they saw something they had never seen before. They looked up and arched across the sky was a glorious sight that was seen for the first time by man. The colors of light divided into the spectrum of the rainbow as the sun shone on that rain shower. Beautiful scene. Not only did they look up and see something, <coughs> they looked up and they heard the voice of God in the middle of shattered dreams, in the middle of a devastated world, a voice of God that gave them an eternal promise, a promise, I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will there be a flood. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by a flood of this magnitude that would destroy the earth. What a beautiful promise. You see, these people were devastated with shattered dreams. God came to them in that moment with a promise, a promise that was going to last to the end of time. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know where you are emotionally. If you're on the mountain peak or if you're in the valley, I don't know if you're experiencing the glory of a new dawn or if you're experiencing the blackness of midnight. Maybe you're facing some shattered dreams. Maybe you're facing some devastation in your life. Maybe it seems like your world has fallen apart. And if it doesn't seem that way, face it. It will seem that way at some point in your life because people you depend on will disappoint you. Events you look forward to will leave you feeling disillusioned. Anticipations will just evaporate into thin air. And when this happens, lift up your eyes. Look for a rainbow. Listen for the voice of God. Listen for his promise. His promise that says, my child, I will not destroy you. I am here to take care of you. Seed time and harvest, summer and winter will not perish. The earth is going on, but I am here for you. What a beautiful promise. His promise is an eternal promise. So if you're facing disappointments this morning, get yourself to the mountain. Build an altar as Noah did. And don't leave until you hear the voice of God and his promises for you. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. This is his promise. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. A beautiful promise. God is going to be there for you. Okay, let's move now to the third mountain. See what aspect of God we can see in this mountain. And we're going to move to Mount Carmel. 1 Kings 18, and uh, we first of all saw God's presence on Mount Sinai, God's promises on Mount Ararat. What do you think we might see on Mount Carmel? You probably have some ideas, the point is just to get you to say it. 
What do you think we might see? Gods? Any ideas? God's power. How many of you were thinking of that? Uh-huh. I thought you just didn't want to say it, right? <laughs> God's power. We want to go to Mount Carmel and see God's power. Now, at this point, Israel was in trouble. They were experiencing a national crisis. The problem was it had not rained for three and a half years. Now, we just talked about Noah. He had too much rain. Now Israel wasn't getting enough of it. If we go three and a half weeks in the middle of summer without rain, we think it's getting pretty dry. We go a month or two, we get pretty desperate. Where's the rain? It's getting dry. We don't know what it's like to go a whole year without rain. Imagine two years, three years, three and a half years, no rain. It rained not for three and a half years, according to the account from James. We can't imagine that. This was a national crisis, and in the eyes of Ahab, Elijah was responsible for the problems they were facing. In the eyes of King Ahab, Elijah was a villain. He was on his most wanted list. I don't think he was in the ten most wanted. I think he was on the top of the list, the most wanted. He was the villain of the day. He was a terrorist that was terrorizing the nation in the eyes of King Ahab. Maybe we could say he was the Osama bin Laden of the day, or he was a personification of ISIS. You know, he was the man to catch. And Ahab was going to no small measures to find this man. I mean, it was a national search for this man. Now, we know that the real villain was Ahab himself because of his rejection of God, and this was God at work. But that was not the perception of the people of the day. The perception of the people of the day, they were buying into Ahab's story that this is Elijah's fault. It's his fault you're experiencing these problems. There was a pretty handsome price on his head. Ahab had sought everywhere for him. According to Obadiah, there was a prophet of that day. There was no nation or kingdom where Ahab had not gone to look for him. And then one day, out of the blue, here's Elijah. He just shows up. Ahab could hardly believe his eyes. And he looks at Elijah and he says, am I really seeing the man that's causing all these problems? And Elijah says, no, because you're the man that's causing all the problems. They had this little finger-pointing session. You're the culprit. It was time for a showdown. It was time to see who was responsible. It was time to see who was in charge. It was time to see where the power really lay. So they called for this meeting on top of Mount Carmel. And again, try to imagine yourself as Elijah. You had been in hiding. Now you came back and presented yourself. You knew that there was a price on your head. And as you meet on top of Mount Carmel, you don't have a lot of moral support. You don't have a lot of friends there to back you up. On the other side, there are hundreds of people. 850 prophets. Elijah with, as far as the people were concerned, an invisible God. 
basically unknown God. On the other side, Ahab, the people of Israel, 850 prophets, and a God that was very popular and visible, this idol. In fact, it was not just one God, but many gods on their side. Balaam, in Hebrew, is a plural form of the word Baal. There were many gods that they worshipped. So here you have one man, one God. Here you have the king, hundreds of people, many gods. Where would you like to be standing? Would you like to be standing in Elijah's place at that point? Well, you know the events that took place there. How that these people spent hours desperately trying to get some visible indication that their gods had power. Finally, Elijah. And I can just picture Elijah in his calm way. Sometimes I picture Elijah with a booming voice, just uh, the man in charge. But somehow it seems to me as he was there on Mount Carmel that maybe he just spoke in a calm, quiet voice. He did not need to make a point. He told the people what to do. They built up the altar. They got the sacrifice ready. He said, go get some water. Let's, let's, we want to make sure we make a point here. We want to make sure you understand where the power is. They doused that altar. They doused that sacrifice. Water was just running everywhere. These people had been jumping and leaping around and cutting themselves and yelling and screaming. Elijah, I don't know how loud he was, but he just simply called out to God in prayer. And I don't know the exact words of his prayer, but maybe it was, God, show your power. Show these people that you are God. And the fire just hit that altar and consumed it up. I don't know if it consumed it instantly. I don't know if it was burning for a while, but there was no doubt in the minds of those people where the power lay. And they made an interesting proclamation. They were crying out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. But that's not all they said. Remember, Balaam was many gods. They worshipped many gods. They cried out, The Lord, He is the God. Read the account. They were acknowledging that God was not simply a God. He is the God because He showed His power in a way that left no doubt in their minds. Maybe you feel sometimes like the world is against you. I don't know your circumstances. Uh, I don't know how many of you have jobs in a secular workplace. Uh, some of you, your schooling situation, so forth. Maybe sometimes you feel kind of alone where you are. Kind of like Elijah felt. One man standing alone. Maybe you feel alone in your family. Maybe you feel no one understands where you are, what you're facing. God knows. God understands. He sees. And God wants to reveal his power to you. If you feel like the world is against you, if you feel like everyone's against you, take heart. Because God knows where you are this morning. If you need to stand alone in your convictions or the position to which God has called you, he is the omnipotent one. He is a God of power. And he can give you the strength to show his presence in your life. Make that your prayer, that God's power could be seen in your life, not to exalt yourself, but to exalt God. And so that as people look at you, they could cry out and say, the Lord, he is God. 
He is the one who cares for you, and he is the one who can carry you through. I think we're going to pause here, and we're going to continue on with this same topic uh, after the uh, lunch break as we look at some more of God's characteristic characteristics, some more of his mountains. Again, seek his presence. Ask God to show you his presence. And then listen for his promises and allow him to show his power in your life. He really wants to do that for you. And again, if you really desire to spend a day or more with God, feel free to pick up one of these copies. Go ahead, Clayton.